So, good morning, church family. Is it on? Did I turn it on? Okay, good. All right, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Once again, it is the second to last book of the New Testament, right before Revelation, which is singular, by the way. A lot of people refer to it as Revelations. Uh, also, the name of this church is singular, Crossroad. Just saying that because a lot of us uh, forget that. Just for the record, it's okay. Everybody knows what you're talking about, but it, it is Crossroad. Uh, so while you guys are turning there and the kids are finding the bingo pictures, I may not have done this right. I'm pushing the wrong thing, maybe. <laughs> there it is. All right. So at least I had it this week. <laughs> so uh, while the kids are finding the bingo pictures in this slide, I want to say there's seven. I could be wrong. Uh, I, I want to just share for a moment what we're doing here. Um, last week, we started the book of Jude, and that is, that's a short but a power-packed letter. And, and it was we believe that Jesus' brother, uh, Jude, was the one who wrote to the churches. And, and it's also it's one of the letters that we have the least information about because um, there's not a lot of context. Okay, and um, but we know we know that it was written to an audience. Original audience were believers, uh, although the, the date and the original recipients we don't actually know that today. Um, but but anyway, there's a lot of deep stuff in this, and a lot of it is truly frightening. You know, last week we read the introduction, uh, the first three verses, and and that was an encouragement to Christians to recognize that we are called by God. We are conserved by God and for God, right? And then what that means for us, we're going to revisit that in just a moment. But uh, today we're going to focus on just one verse, and that is verse 4. It goes like this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray that you help all of us to be good soil. Lord, let the, the Word take root and bear fruit, and I thank you for the ability to be able to stand here. Um, Father, I know I thank you for this a lot, but I'm so grateful to be able to preach your Word to your people through the power of your Spirit, and I thank you that, um, that right now I, I get to... Uh, to be blessed, Father, even, even to, uh, to do it legally in this country, Lord. Um, hopefully that will continue. But, Father, um, just pray for all of us that as we, as we study this today, help us to recognize uh, who he's referring to and who he isn't, and also to examine ourselves. Lord, we want to be faithful to you, and so I pray that you help our hearts to be on the same trajectory that you have designed us for. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, the very first word in this verse is important because it harkens back to the previous three verses, and that word is for. And it's vital for us to make the connection, okay, that, that Jude is making. By saying for, he points us back to the previous three verses. And we discussed last Sunday, our job as believers is to, is to contend, it's to fight, or the faith, and what that entails. And if you missed it, I, I encourage you to check it out online. Um, you can either 
watch a video, you can listen to the podcast. Um, but anyway, that little word for is not just a transition into verse 4. It shows the reasoning behind verses 1 through 3. Okay, it tells us why it is abundantly necessary for Christians to contend for the faith. And the reason is that essentially there are others who are working, actively working to undermine and to destroy the faith. Some of them it's conscious, some of them it's unconscious, but they do this by their hypocrisy, they do this by their sinful deeds. And so Jude gives us a glimpse uh, kind of into God's sovereign judgment in verse 4 before going into far greater depth on wicked people themselves. And and we're going to get into that uh, at least next week, Lord willing. But So today's verse reminds us about three aspects of God's sovereign judgment, and we're going to examine each one in turn. And the first is this. God's judgment is definite. God's judgment is definite. You you may have noticed there's an asterisk there, okay? You're going to see in the footnote, this statement is objective, and that means it applies across the board, okay? This is a truth that cannot be invalidated. It cannot be compromised. God is perfectly righteous, and so his sense of justice is absolute. It's incorruptible, and it must be satisfied. So let's break down this part of the verse together, okay? Firstly, Jude says, certain people, but then he doesn't go into great detail about who they are. And the implication there, perhaps, is is that he doesn't have a whole lot of information on them specifically, but that the people who are in the churches that he's writing to, if they are wary, if if they're paying attention, they should be able to tell who they are. And from the context, it's kind of difficult to say whether he's referring to a specific uh, class of people. I don't think he is, which to me says it could be lay people. It could be leaders. It could be visitors who profess Christianity. But one thing that is very clear is that the people that he is referring to in verse 4 are not truly saved. And this is an important distinction. Okay, I I want everyone to understand that the people that Jude is describing here are not the same as those Christians who are truly saved, but who may have some errors in their understanding of Scripture, okay? Nor is it referring to sincere believers who still get caught up in sin, but then repent, because hopefully that's all of us. If you've reached sinless perfection, you're probably in the wrong church, (laughs) okay? And so... Jude is talking about people who do not have the Holy Spirit at all. And so they have no intention of serving the Lord. And any alleged faith that they may have in Christ is is completely surface level. It's the same as as the demons in James 2.19 that he says they believe, big air quotes there, and they shudder. Okay, so it's important that we all grasp this because this verse, this verse is not intended to terrify true Christians and cause you to doubt your salvation. Okay, rather, Jude helps Christians to examine ourselves and that reveals how far outside of the faith these certain people that he's referring to actually are. Okay, so the next phrase, having crept in unnoticed. That's an interesting one. Crept in unnoticed is actually one word in Greek. It's a compound word, and it basically means like sliding up alongside. 
okay? He's referring to when false believers worm their way into a church. Sneakily, if that's, is that a word? Sneakily? Sneak, surreptitiously, <laughs> you know? Uh, not, not in an assertive or an obvious way. The context here would indicate that the church at large wasn't really recognizing what was happening. So these, these like certain people, they're kind of coming in under the radar, so to speak. And, and that's a dangerous situation. It's sort of like putting broken glass in a pot of stew and then serving it to people who are unaware. It's almost certain that someone is going to get hurt in that scenario. And once the people are introduced into the church, their lies and their wickedness tends to spread and affect others. It's like, um, it's like kudzu. You guys, anybody, you Tennessee people know, you know, kudzu, it got introduced into a region and it completely took over. And now you go to the Appalachians and there's kudzu everywhere and you can't get rid of it. It's like striped mussels for you fishermen. You know what I'm talking about? Got introduced into the lakes. It's like Dallas grass. Jerry, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, it's that stuff that it had a good purpose to begin with. I know it's to feed cattle because it grows so fast, but they, oh, it turns into these nasty, I'm going to stop. Anyway, anyway, they come in, they take over if they're not stopped early. So we have an obligation to stay aware, to be wary for those who, who behave in the way that Jude describes in this letter. And after all, it's, it's better to chew on a mouthful of broken glass than to stumble in one's faith, isn't it? So we have a bunch of certain people who have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. I may have gone too far there. Nope, went the wrong way. There it is. Now, what does that mean? We're long ago designated for this condemnation. This, this might get a little bit controversial, okay? So bear in mind, we are reading Scripture, and stick with me. Um, I looked at the Greek in this sentence, okay? And it, it says that long ago, these people were predestined. That's the word used here, essentially, for this condemnation. Now, literally, the word is is krima, meaning judgment. And that's kind of scary. And yet we must recognize there is an inherent paradox in this concept because all of us know human beings are not robots, right? We know this. We exercise choice. It's based not only on who we are on the inside, uh, which is how we were created, but also what happens outside of us, the circumstances. A lot of that's not within our control. So there, there's a nature and a nurture aspect to this. So, so there's always a paradox, meaning two things that seem contradictory at first glance, but they're not, and they're held in tension, okay? No one is a blank slate. Even little babies are born sinful. We know this from Scripture. Everyone is responsible for their actions to whatever extent they choose to do them. And yet, some are predestined for judgment. We see an example in, in Judas Iscariot. He, he, was, he was fully responsible for his choice to be a traitor and sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and yet he, he was also someone who was specifically chosen and created to betray Christ. It's a hard concept. Proverbs 16.4 tells us the Lord has made everything 
for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. That word in Hebrew means calamity. It means it can mean uh, destruction. It can even mean evil. It's ha. <laughs> I'm trying to pronounce it. My dad was was helping me with it yesterday. Um, and as much as we, we may struggle with this concept, this paradox, it is clear, okay, that God uses what we think of as both good and evil to accomplish his purposes. In his sovereignty, God is able to use even the most depraved people. He can take what we see as tragic, and he can produce something that ultimately glorifies him. Probably the greatest example is the cross. Now that said, his judgment upon the unrepentantly wicked is definite. It is absolutely certain. In Psalm 92, we read these words, The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, even though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. No one can thwart God, and no one can prevent his just recompense upon the wicked. Now, what we just talking about, this, this may be a struggle for people to hear, but it's going to get tougher before it gets better, okay? So stick with me. Because God's judgment is not only definite, it's also deserved. I was behind, sorry. It's also deserved. Once again, this is an objective statement. It applies universally. Anyone who has lived long enough to willingly sin has rebelled against the Lord. This, this, this is the inevitability of our human condition. The flesh leads us into sin. This is what we do. But Jude's words here are pointing to a class of people who, who've completely given themselves over to the flesh. He refers to them as ungodly people. Now, what does that mean, ungodly people? Now, honestly, I was thinking when I looked at the Greek, the word would be uh, atheos, you know, against God, where we get our word atheist. It wasn't, though. It wasn't. Instead, it's a word, you know, I keep on forgetting here. Sorry. It, it's a word that means impious or impious. It's someone who is not submitted to the Lord in any way. And this is a word that encompasses both a person's attitude and the person's behavior, and it reflects an unwillingness to trust and obey God. And y'all, this has been a problem all throughout history, you know? I mean, from the garden on. In Romans 1, uh, the second half of the chapter, pretty much the entire second half of the chapter, is dedicated to explaining uh, the miserable wretchedness of human beings. And, and we continue to just you know, spiral further into depravity, and it's the result that the Lord continues to give us over, at least the people that are in, in Romans 1. God continues to give them over to their basest instincts and their most vile lusts. And these are the haunting words in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen, listen, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I want you to think about this. 
the ungodly are so given over to their wickedness, their, their evil, that they are, they are trying to hide obvious truths of God that are evident in logic and in nature. And this is, this is precisely what we're seeing today. But it's, it's way more egregious in some ways than it even has been in the past. Has, has there ever been a time in history before now, before just a few years ago, that men and women are told they can change their gender simply by how they feel? Has there ever been a time? It's beyond asinine. It's ridiculous. But these are just the symptoms of the underlying issue. The idea that people can dictate reality is an attempt to make each person a god, little g, of their own reality, their own world. This is evil. It's evil. And God has condemned mankind's unwillingness to accept his ethical standards of sex and sexuality. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 2, the apostle referred to the Lord turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and says that he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And in, in the next chapter, uh, verse 7, he says that he condemned them to extinction. That's, sorry, that's, I just read that. The heavens and earth, listen, this is, this is cool and scary. The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. You hear that? They're being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the what? The ungodly. The ungodly. So the ungodly are those who pervert. Now before we, before we talk uh, about what is being perverted, I want us to, to quickly examine the verb itself. This is not being used as a noun here, okay? Is a verb. In Greek, the word literally means to transfer. Okay? So in, in, in that instance, Jude doesn't just mean like twisting something a little bit or tainting it slightly. He, he's talking about completely supplanting it with something else. All right? So I, I would argue the English word here may not be strong enough to convey the idea in Greek, which means to exchange or turn one thing into something completely different. Okay, so, so what, is it, what is it that the ungodly are perverting or trans, transferring, and, and to what? The object here, friends, is the grace of our God. The grace of our God, which is one of the most glorious and precious concepts in all of Scripture. You know, God, God's, God's grace is tied to His goodness. And that word, that word, the, the grace of God, it's used in Scripture for his, his kindness toward the undeserving. We often refer to it as unmerited favor, but, but sometimes it's also, that word is used interchangeably with mercy pretty often. And in this case, I think that there, there could be some sense, I guess, of God's, his provisional blessing, you know, to, physically speaking, but, but far more likely, it seems like he's referring to a couple of things that are very deeply intertwined here. Okay, first, the Lord's forgiveness of sin, and secondly, the imputation of righteousness. Now, these two 
concepts. They're, they're not just essential to correctly understanding the Christian faith. Without them, there would be no humans in heaven. Without God's forgiveness of sin and imputation of righteousness, there would be no people in heaven. On top of that, those two things are produced by the same events. Now, one of the best scriptures uh, to, to explain this is a really short section of Romans 3, begins in verse 22, where we learn that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want to pause there for a second, okay? Because we, we all need to, to catch something about this saying. The word, the word fall in Greek, I know, I know I've shared this with you before, but some of you haven't heard it, so I'm going to do this. It's in the infinitive tense, okay? Meaning that, that there is neither a specific beginning nor end to this verb. So it could actually, um, you could translate it very accurately as fall short, which it is, or even continually falling short. It's something that's always happening. And this, this is important because, church, we need to understand we never outgrow our spiritual deficiency. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> we never outgrow our need for Jesus. There will always be a need for God's forgiveness and for imputed righteousness because we'll never achieve sinless perfection in this life. So we continually fall short. Did I finish there? No. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Gift. Free thing. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I'm not sure if there's any other place in the Bible that so succinctly explains the mechanics of salvation. You know, at the end of this passage, uh, we see the means by which God is able to forgive our sins. Jesus Christ was a propitiation, which means a sacrifice which appeases wrath. Okay? Now, I know this is a lot of churchy words, but, but just bear with me. This is so good. In other words, there has to be blood shed in order for sin to be forgiven. We see this concept all through the Old Testament, but it's, it's specifically spelled out for us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. This is because the righteous and completely just response to sin is what? Death. But God knew there was no way for sinful people to be able to pay for their own sin apart from physical and spiritual death. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the payment for that sin. Jesus lived a completely sinless life. He, he was, that was in, in, in this, this world that we live in. Can you believe it? A completely sinless life. And then despite, he was tempted just as we are, but he never fell. And then he underwent agonizing torture and a humiliating execution in order to take upon himself the punishment that we all deserve and he did not deserve. So he redeemed us by paying the price for our sins, and that is for the sins of the whole world, according to John 1. 
But see, the beauty of God's plan of salvation doesn't end there. Forgiving our sins means that we are no longer condemned to hell, but it doesn't mean that we're worthy for, for heaven by default. Okay? No, we are only able to go to heaven because Christ's perfect, perfect and sinless life is applied to us, and that is by the grace of God. So God not only forgives our sins, but he imputes. In other words, he credits righteousness to us who have faith in him. So, so to reiterate, okay, by pouring out his anger against sin on the crucified Savior and attributing that Savior's perfection to us, we escape his wrath and we receive his favor. Is that an awesome trade or what? It's a great exchange, isn't it? But be aware, friends, this subject can be pretty unpopular because most people don't believe they've done anything that should make them deserve to go to hell. You know, they, they don't recognize, it's been called the sinfulness of sin. They don't understand that everyone who has committed a sin has rebelled against God and deserves his wrathful judgment. Most people just, they, they believe that, that they deserve to go to heaven because they consider themselves a good person, right? That's a nice idea, but it flies in the face of Scripture. We need the grace of God, both to escape hell and to enter heaven. But anyway, back to Jude. He says that these ungodly people transfer this doctrine of the true grace of God over into sensuality, which is basically the exact opposite of what grace was intended to do. These people who are perverting grace are acting as if grace is just freedom to celebrate and engage all their fleshly lusts, you know, and, 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 and do whatever they want instead of what it is for, which is to motivate us to live in holiness. And so people were practicing licentiousness. I know that's, that's a big word. It basically means license to do whatever I want, and what I want is what God hates. That's basically what that means. And this is what... Uh, the Christian martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I know you've heard of him, he, he referred to this, this concept as cheap grace. Okay? Now, grace is free. It's free to us. It's a gift, but we should never view it as cheap. It came at great cost to the king of the universe. Ultimately, many professing Christians treat grace as license to sin. And th this is not a new phenomenon. You go all the way back to the first century, and there was this heresy called antinomianism, which means lawlessness. And that was where people would abuse God's grace by claiming that, that intentionally sinning glorifies God because he's so good, he's just he's compelled to forgive us by his loving nature. And people do the same thing today. They excuse their, their rebellion against the, the Lord of the universe with trite little statements like, well, everybody sins or nobody's perfect. You know, guys, instead, Scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God should push us the other way. Grace should push us deeper into God. Further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis would say. In Romans 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still Live in it. 
I'm just going to ask the question. If people are living in known and intentional and unrepentant sin, then how can they say they've been born again? Does the evidence indicate that their profession is true? God knows the heart, but we see the fruit. Now, the book of 1 John has a lot to say about that subject. So, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord. Y'all, y'all this, this bold, clear statement reminds us of who Jude is talking about. Because again, he's, he's not referring to sincere Christians who are struggling with sin. He's talking about people who have consciously chosen to reject the authority of God and live in rebellion to his commands. Now, unfortunately, for these people, God, as a sovereign being, has the prerogative to demand whatever he desires from his creation. The Greek here that's translated master and that's translated Lord, uh, both of them are pretty intense. The the word Lord is commonly used in reference to Jesus, um, and and it does have less formal meanings. I mean, it's kind of like senor in Spanish. It can mean mean like a a high, exalted, you know, person in society, or it can just mean sir. But with respect to Jesus, okay, whenever the word is is used, it means supreme authority, okay? And the word master, that's way more specific, because the Greek, the, the, the word is literally despotes, which is where we get our word despot. So basically, it means someone who has complete authoritarian rule. Whether they're good or not, obviously in God's case, he is always good. (laughs) But in other words, Jude is saying that these false Christians, these ungodly people that are sneaking into the church, they are denying our sovereign God. Now, how is it possible to do this while still being unnoticed in the church? I mean, after all, if they just stood up and declared some blasphemous beliefs, the church would know, right? I've got a theory about this. It's a pretty simple theory. I think they may be paying lip service to the Christian faith, but their actions show that their true allegiance is only to themselves. How do we know? Because Jesus makes it clear that there is an intimate connection between himself and his teachings. While we can probably all agree the context is different, we see that connection between Christ and his words in Luke 9.26, where Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father. So these, these ungodly people are denying their master and Lord, if not by their words, then by their actions. Hang on to that one. It's going to come back around shortly. Last point. Shortest point. Thank me later. God's judgment is definite. God's judgment is deserved. And yet, God's judgment is deferred. It's deferred. To defer something means to put it off to another time. So God's judgment is put off to another time. But in a subjective sense, meaning this deferment is not applied universally. Okay? Before we tie all this in, I want to notice the last two words of this verse tell us who our Master and Lord is, and He is none other 
than Jesus Christ. Okay? You ever thought about the fact that God specifically chose the name Jesus for Mary to name her son? Now, this was not at all an unusual name back then. The, the, the anglicized version is Jesus. The Greek is Yesu. The actual name that Jesus would have been called is the Hebrew Yeshua. And that was a common name, just like Joshua today. It's the same, same name, essentially. And that said, it was a pretty awesome choice because it was his identity in both name and description. Okay? Yeshua literally means Yahweh is salvation. Okay? And the angel Gabriel said, He shall be called Yeshua, for he will take away the sins of his people. And then Christ, which is, is Christu in Greek, it's, it's Mashiach, in Hebrew, um, we think of it as Messiah. That means anointed one, okay? And this wasn't Jesus' last name. It was his title, okay? He is Jesus of Nazareth, bar Joseph, the Christ. And when we consider that Jesus Christ could probably be read as a sentence, Yahweh saves through his anointed one, it's pretty cool. Now, with that truth, let's, let's reflect on how God's judgment was deferred. God's people, okay? God's people, that, that's me and that's you if you have placed faith in him, and it's every other faithful believer throughout history and until Jesus returns. His people don't have to look forward to the day when we will be condemned for our sins. We don't have to look with trepidation and fear because our reckoning doesn't occur in the future. It happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. Jesus Christ was condemned for our sins. Make no mistake. He died for the sins of the world, but his blood is only applied to those who will receive it. For those who receive it, our debt is paid in full. To tell us die. We are no longer subject to the eternal penalty for our sin. We are no longer subject to the dominion of sin, so we're not under its power. Instead, just, just as Christ rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the throne of the Father, so all who believe will rise and will spend eternity in the presence of God. And, and on top of that, he gives us the power through his spirit to live in progressive holiness in this life too. That's killer. That's pretty great. It's encouraging. But there will be those who refuse his gift and who won't submit to his authority and they will rise to eternal disgrace. Their judgment has not been deferred because they have not accepted the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. So I'm going to end today with a warning. Friend, if you deny the Savior, you deny his salvation. There is no other way to heaven except through Jesus. No other way. How terrible is it to deny so great a gift? How insulting to the Lord when we choose to rebel against his kindness and the way that he provided for righteousness and seek our own path. But please, don't think that we accept Jesus simply by making a profession. 
those certain people who've crept in unnoticed, that, that whitewash only goes so deep. As Paul said in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Friends, I hope that none of us fit this description. And in fact, I'm not sure if we'd know if we did. I think we fallen human beings are good at self-delusion. But the best way that I know of to believe, I mean, to, to, to know that we belong to the Lord is to believe on Jesus Christ. And we can know that we believe when we live out our faith. So I want to encourage you today to show your faith by confession, repentance, baptism, if you've not done that, and lifelong obedience to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this group that's here today. I thank you, Father, for the grace and mercy that you showed us through Christ on the cross. I ask, Father, for everybody here that, Lord, if there's anybody here that has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, move on their heart. Convict them. Convince them. Your Holy Spirit came. He's, Jesus Christ said the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to the hearts of each person here, that those who belong to Christ will be assured and reminded that they are in Christ because of your promise. And those who are not, who, who, who may have not truly placed their faith in Christ, may they recognize and be convicted by it, Lord. May they come to, to, during the song of invitation, may they come forward and be baptized according to your word and profess Christ as their Lord and Savior and then to walk faithfully. And God, for those who have already done these things, may we, may we continue to link arms and to continue down this journey of the Christian life together, following the words of Jesus and trying with all of our might to do what is right and, and to, to press on toward the upward call that is in Christ Jesus.